You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. I'm so happy to see so many familiar faces around the table and so many new faces in any case. So I'm, uh, my name is Geert uh, from uh, Friends of Europe. Um, I'm delighted that we've managed uh, together with the Anna Lind Foundation uh, to put together uh, the events for the next two days. Um, I'll just tell you, you know, from our perspective, from Friends of Europe's perspective and our European Young Leaders Program, you know, why that was launched and how this has led to what we're trying to do here now. If you look at today's world, needless to say to all of you that you know, we have a whole series of transnational challenges and we have a whole series of common challenges that you can best tackle by collaboration and partnership. And if you look at it from a European perspective, whereas kind of 20, 25 years ago, all the kind of CEOs and uh, prime ministers, etc., would know each other in a small network, that's no longer the case now. So we thought a number of years ago it would be useful to recreate a kind of a network uh, of young people, young leaders, people that you know, are in their 30s, but that, are, that occupy positions of leadership. And in a variety of sectors as well. So not only in politics and business, but also in, in the cultural world and kind of media and academics, etc. And to hopefully create a, a new network of people that know each other, get to know each other, and that can trust each other. Because I think that, that's, that's very important and in short supply these days. And then last year, for the first time, we also selected a number of young leaders from the MENA region and from uh, uh, the United States and Canada in an effort to say we have a number of uh, neighbors that would also like to kind of uh, see how we can re-establish networks of trust uh, with, with some of these uh, you know, partners. So we, we were in Tallinn in, in last September for the first time with our European cohort and then the uh, people from the MENA region and our transatlantic friends. And it was a very good and lively set of discussions, I think, in the beginning of a, a journey, I think. And for those who've, who've heard me say this about, um, about Boris Yeltsin, you, you know, it's, 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 it's one of these fun stories I always uh, like to refer to. You, you remember this this anecdote, it's probably a myth, huh? but uh, John, John Major was reportedly saying that he was having a conversation with Yeltsin, and um, at some point, you know, he asked Yeltsin, said, you know, Mr. President, you know, can, you know at that time, of course, President of, of Russia, um, can, you, can you summarize in one word the state of the economy in Russia? And Yeltsin said, good. <laughs> Silence, so, you know, so Major says, well, Perhaps, Mr. President, perhaps you can, you can say it, elaborate, you can perhaps say it in two words. And Yeltsin answered, not good. <laughs> and I thought, it, it, it reminded me here today, it's, it's, for me it's a kind of the equivalent of the, the, the glass half full or, or half empty in a way. Yeah? And I think if you look at the challenges that face us today, um, we have a number of challenges. The problem is that through the lens of the media, you, you tend to see only the challenges, which is one of the problems, I think. Uh, and therefore, I think there's a whole series of opportunities. And if you look at the so-called uh, refugee crisis uh, seen from Europe and from a number of European leaders, I think it's an opportunity as well. It's an opportunity as well because it means that at least, even if it's from time to time for the wrong reasons, there's more interest at the political level 
to see how our neighbors in the south are doing. And I think that's an opportunity we should all uh, seize. Um, if you look at the kind of aging societies and the kind of dynamism you see in the younger generations also, in, uh, for instance, in, in, the, in North Africa, it's, it's, it's impressive, and I think and we should all uh, harness that power. So I think back to the concept of, of a young leader's network. So you start with getting to know each other and then to trust each other. But then you need to go to the next step. And I hope that we can, uh, in the next two days, uh, make the beginnings of the next step. And the next step is basically to collaborate, to start collaborative projects, to exchange best practices, and to see how best we can find solutions to some of the challenges uh, facing us. And if we say partnership, I mean, I'm very happy, as I said at the beginning, uh, that this is the first of a series of, of partnerships we have with the Anna Lind Foundation and its very impressive uh, Young Mediterranean Voices. Uh, thanks to you all for being here and to kind of uh, give your heart and your uh, minds and your experience into this collective effort, I think. And with that, I think I'd uh, pass on to Paul. Thanks, Gert. Um, so I'll try to, um, to add to what Gert said, maybe on, on partnership and, and also on the global perspective, the context of this meeting. Um, uh, maybe if I can just underline at the beginning, as Gert said, the value, if I can say, why we believe in this meeting, why we think that it's timely. And when I look in terms of the foundations program and why this could be a game changer. And I think the reason is that we've been really uh, working with many of you here in the room quite intensely since 2011 when it came to building youth debate, okay? Many of you here are connected to that. We, 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 I think we did something quite special. Uh, in 2011, we reacted to some quite momentous events in the region. I took that view from Alexandria with the foundation of how do we react. It wasn't very clear for us, for many international organizations. But what came out very clearly, I remember those days when I lived through the revolution in Alexandria, uh, was voice and skills. I came out in all the consultations we did, voice and skills. So that's, that was the birth of Young Arab Voices. That's why we did it. We responded to that. And I think we did quite a good job together. We took uh, a debate program to quite diverse locations across the Mediterranean. We created a model that worked and, and other people said worked. Um, and we, we also were able to create some kind of ownership, which I think for this kind of program is really important. You know, it's an identity with that program. At the same time, I think we heard, and we heard collectively and together, a very clear message after six years, which is debate is not enough. That was a really clear message that we got from a lot of the work we did in, on the ground. And the importance of transforming debate to action, taking debate to that next level, ensuring that the debate wasn't just about capturing issues, but was turning it into action, whether it was setting up an organization, doing common projects, as Gert said, or um, trying to make, uh, take full advantage of this South-North connection that we have. So that whole debate to action was a key challenge as I see it. And this is why I say that this meeting could be a game changer, because I think in bringing together these two networks, we have a real opportunity to go much deeper in terms of the impact of what we can do when we transform uh, debate to action as well. So that's for me why I put a huge value on this uh, meeting. The, the other two points just to, uh, I'd like to inline is the global perspective. I had the chance, more or less exactly a month ago today, to be in New York at the UN Security Council. And I was part of uh, um, also supporting the presentation of the first global study on youth peace and security. Many of you have been involved in that process during the last two years. For me, it's been the most rewarding professional experience I had in my entire life because going across the world through this uh, consultation process with young people 
from Johannesburg to New York, from Rabat to Tallinn, you see very clear messages. You see very clear messages about the violence of exclusion, again, about the challenge of transforming uh, debate, as Gert said, into the media headlines and changing the narrative. But it means that whatever we're working on from Colombia to here in Europe is, is the same kind of challenge. But also what I saw at the Security Council was a little bit, just a minor shift in, uh, in narrative because there were 68 countries, member states, who turned up to that meeting, and they used a language that we haven't heard maybe enough in the last two, three years. It wasn't the policy panic you see sometimes here in Brussels, which is mainly stemmed by the reaction to counter-violent extremism and labeling young people as problems to be solved rather than uh, a resource. All the member states, bar one or two, um, turned up to that meeting and really gave the kind of messaging that I'll expect to hear in the room in the next 48 hours, the right kind of messaging. So the consensus, I think, is emerging. The global consensus that investment in voice to leadership, voice to agency, is right. So we're out of the what, we're into the how. And that's where the innovative practice, the pioneering practice, the ability to exchange what we're doing, the ability to replicate what we do in a community in um, Alexandria, to Tallinn and elsewhere, is really critical because you have member states and I think the wider international organizations who are looking forward saying we got it, youth voice to leadership, youth voice to agency, how do we do it? So it's a huge opportunity for everyone in the room who I, I think has a huge um, experience there. And the second point is about uh, partnership as again Gert underlined very clearly. Um, we, th this is a, a choice. We, we choose to work through partnership and we do it with our eyes wide open that it's not easy. And believe me, in the world today, there's many illustrations of people who will advocate, go on it on your own, close your borders, do it on your own. It's, a, it's the way to do it. It's easy, it's straightforward. Partnership work is difficult, okay? I've done it my entire career, and it's not, it's not easy. You can align the values, you can align the strategies at the top of the organizations, but then you need to look very carefully for that added value. You need to ensure that the partnership can go to that next level. And that's what we're trying to do here today. We have a theory, if you like. We have a theory that connecting young med voices, a kind of a, a, a grassroots debate movement across the Arab region, which is now coming to Europe, with the European Young Leaders uh, Network, a very powerful network of young and emerging leaders, that will be a win-win. That's what we, we think. But the only way this partnership is going to be worked if it's defined by everyone in the room. You have to see in the next 48 hours what does that partnership look like? What is the added value of that conversation when you come together? And I think from what we'll take and what we'll listen and learn from the next 48 hours, that's exactly what will define the Friends of Europe and Anlin Foundation partnership on. What you've got, and I think we've got from you, is the commitment. We're not here just for this meeting. We're here for the next 10, 20 years. This is something that we're completely committed to, and I think we've proven uh, since 2011 and before that we're there. We're going to be there. But how we do it, what's the added value, what's the real connection points, that's what we need to pick up in the next 48 hours. And that means that two days from now, we can take away and support you and where you want to go as well. So that's really what we want to do. And again, it's an absolute privilege to be here with all of you and again on this quite extraordinary journey together. Thanks. And with that, we pass on to Demendra. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Um, <clears throat> my name is Damendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy at Friends of Europe and your moderator for most of today. Um, gives me great pleasure to welcome you all here uh, in, on a very uncharacteristic, very kind of southern 
Mediterranean Brussels that we don't really we rarely get actually. So please enjoy it. It's good to have this uh, lovely warm weather. Um, this the program you have before you is entitled Time for a Paradigm Shift. All the information you need for the next two days is in here. If you need advice, information, or you don't know what you, what, what's happening, please see one of our, our, our colleagues that are, which are, who are around the room. You have Claire, you have Natalie, you have um, Alexandra, Sarah, uh, and Elisa, are all here if you have a question about the where to go, what to do, and if you've got any queries uh, at all. Um, we've tried to make the time that we have with you as effective as possible uh, in terms of our thinking about what uh, the content should be, the kind of conversations we need to have as a group and as a community. But ultimately, um, the, the richness of what takes place in the next 24 hours comes from you. It's about how present you are going to be in this room, um, how aware you are going to be from your phone, um, in particular, I'm, I made the huge faux pas that my phone was left on. I do apologize, but you know, this kind of drives our lives at the moment. So why don't we just put it away for a minute, put it on silence and, you know, be here, be here with each other, uh, respect each other and respect each other's time to have the conversation that we need to have. Because this is rare. You don't often get the opportunity to connect with people like you and people who are different, but people who share a lot about your own circumstances and the passion and desire that you have for change making and for making the world better without sounding really twee and romantic. That's the simple message. You're here because you actually want to make the world better um, uh, from your perspective, from your region, but also recognizing that we live in an increasingly globalized, very connected world. So the impact of, of the next 24 hours or so will really be a result of what you bring to this table. Um, your, your perspectives, um, your time, um, your headspace and your presence of being here, your presence of mind being here in this room and over time. Don't hesitate at any stage to say, actually, this isn't working for me, or I have a big question that's not being addressed. Because actually, you are all leaders in your own right. Don't be passive. So if something's not working for you, say. Or if you want to have a conversation about something else which actually you think is really important in the next 48 hours, please say so and we will respond, uh, I promise. Whether we can make it happen, I'm not sure, but let's, let's go with the flow in terms of really making sure this is, this is, this is working for you because, as I said, this is a very rich opportunity for us to come together and think about, uh, as both Git and uh, Paul have said, the kind of, the why is not the question here, it's the how. Um, to a certain extent and you know the one of the things that happens when you all come together you have a great time you go back and actually life just continues and the important thing here is, is to think about actually what kind of connection can you make that might be sustained that might lead to sustained activity over time uh, even if it's one small action that you take to make a connection with someone one of the, one other person that you haven't met or had a conversation with once you leave that'll be important in terms of by, by creating a relationship or creating an action that might lead to something so on that note what i wanted to do is ask you to work in groups we've tried to kind of blend you and mix you as much as possible in, the, in around the tables but given what the introductory remarks from Paul and Geert, what we wanted you to do was spend about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, um, having a conversation about what drives people, what drives people into change making. Use your own experience as the basis of this conversation, but think about what is it, what is it that drives people into change making or not, for example. We live in a, in a global environment where actually the relationship between citizen and people and government has been the poorest over time since recorded. Levels of trust are the worst that we've ever, ever experienced. We know that. We've experienced in the past 12, 13 years, 
corruption of the level in government and financial services that we've never ever you know would believe would take place and that has eroded trust over time we know that climate change is having a huge effect on our lives and we know that increasingly um, security matters and defense matters are almost creating the framework for how governments are treating us and treating our lives and working with each other as governments. So there is a number of things that have taken place which have really fundamentally uh, shaped our experiences and our sense and level of trust within those who govern us. But also, it's those things that are often um, drive, it's adversity or, or the negativity that sometimes drives our desire to make change happen. It's often not out of situations of you know, positivity. We often find adversity as a source of change making. And it makes us uh, get up, it makes us do things. Whether if we use the Arab Springs, for example, or, or a range of issues. That, I mean, the fact that you know, 1.5 million students in the UK are gonna engage in a massive letter writing campaign around Brexit, for example. Um, what is it that drives change? What is it that pe drives people into change making? And the purpose of this is really to understand that actually, from your perspective, what are the things that we need to take account of in the conditions in the conditions that enable people to make change. So think about what drives people into change making, and then also think about the conditions that are required for that process. So spend about 20, 25 minutes having that conversation amongst yourselves. We'd like you to come up with three things, just three points. Um, come up with three points that we can share amongst each other. Uh, and if you can, try and think of things which are practical. I mean, you know, we say actually we'd want better leadership. Yeah, don't we all want better leadership? How do we get it, you know? Um, um, you know, you need to have passion and heart. Absolutely, you need passion and heart, but that isn't gonna get you anywhere. So think about practical things that you think would be important for enabling people to make change. So what drives people to make change? And think of some practical things that, you know, which are takeaways that we can think about. Um, it could be about funding, it could be about policy, it could be about, you know, networks, it could be a whole range of things. But I leave you to have that conversation because this is really a chance for you to get to know each other as well. So, you know, say, um, share your own stories of change making. What inspired you to be here and to get in involved with the, you know, the Medi you know, Young Mediterranean Voices Network or the European Young Leaders Network as a part of that? So getting to know each other, talk about what drives people into change making and think of three practical things that we can share with each other. Over to you, is that clear? I'll give you a reminder in about 20 minutes so you've got five minute uh, you know, advance warning before you close. Over to you. Have you, I mean, uh, in terms of, so was that a good conversation? Was it worthwhile? Oh good. Good, good, good. Um, in terms of feedback, have you kind of found one person or are you going to do it as a round? How have you decided? Have you got one person at per table that's going to do the do and say, this is what we're going to... Okay, all right. Try and do that, please. What we want to do is when you, kind of, when you feedback, as I said, um, my goodness, please. Okay, right. Um, Try and kind of focus, as I said, you know, on things. It would be good to get a sense of the conversation you had, uh, but also try and focus on the two or three, well, three things that, you know, you think are important. And let's try and kind of not make it a long speech if we can, right? Because we, uh, we do have time to keep and we need to 
roughly break, and I shouldn't say roughly, roughly get quarter past 11, okay? So that's the time that we've got to play with. But we've also got a speaker in between uh, before, after your feedback and uh, the break. So I need to make sure I fit that in too. Uh, we have a very interesting contribution from a politician from the Netherlands. Um, so who'd like to go first? Or I'll just pick. I'm going to pick on you, this table, because you asked for an extra minute. <laughs> take, take the mic. And what, we'll try, what we want to try and do, if we can, is use our iPhones to record you a little bit, if you don't mind. So we can share it amongst you and put it out there. But I'm not sure about the quality, so it would be helpful if you could speak into the mic, right? And so we're going like to try this? and film you. That, like that, yes. So over, say who you are. Okay. Hello, everybody. We are all honored to be here. I am Rehab from Tunisia. Uh, okay, so our group actually started the conversation with inverting the question. What does not make youth become change makers? Mm. Why are you so uninvolved? So from the answers to this inverted question, we found some, well, we tried to find some answers according to our different experiences. Okay, we started with, uh, first thing, social injustice and inequality. If you have lived through social injustice, if you have lived through inequality, you would become more involved and you, this can drive you to change what is happening. So it's a driver for change. Then the second thing was this dissatisfaction with the status quo. If you are dissatisfied with what is happening in your local village or in the government in general, you are usually wanting to change it. So from that, we moved on to inspiration and self-confidence. This actually came about with a, the, some, one of us, Khalaf, actually talking about TED Talks. I think all of you are familiar with the TED Inspirational Talks. He was personally involved in such initiatives after hearing a TED Talk. So when you hear someone so inspiring, someone that makes you think that you are valued, that you can make a change, even at a very small level, you would be uh, able to change. Of course, this gives you hope. This gives you hope for your local community or the bigger one. Of course, in self-confidence, you need to be confident enough that you can change something. If you lost hope, you can't. Then the next thing, we talked about ambitions to make things better. We talked about global warming, for example, activists for the environment. There are people who are very selfless, but actually thinking about the generations that are coming ahead. So if you want a change maker, to, well, to make a change, you need to think ahead. Then we thought about the solutions. So we started with the first thing, which is a awareness and better understanding solution. You can't change something if you don't fully understand it. You can't change a situation if you don't understand exactly what's going on. And we talked about here, like, we can give in the example of um, clubs in schools or kindergarten. You can start from that level so it's a bottom-up procedure if students in schools are actually taught to uh, give their opinion to have local elections even in your school those who are elected I said earlier can choose the color of the classroom so it's something very small but it teaches that person that his or her opinion matters then we talked about youth representation if youth are represented well enough in all scales they can think of themselves as change makers. We talked about the example of the municipal election that happened three weeks ago in Tunisia. There, the government gave a um, obligation of a youth quota and a women quota. There's a 50% youth participation in those who are going to be elected. Also, more than 50% of women were 
possibly um, possible electors. Then we talked about grassroots initiatives in Morocco and also in Algeria, those who are trying to make people understand better their situation and hence feel valuable enough to change. And then, of course, there's a smiley, which is hope. You need to be hopeful and happy to change something. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great, Rehab. Thank you very much. And you didn't mention money once. That's really interesting. But money is important, isn't it, sometimes? But let's think about that differently. Think about it differently. I didn't want to go there, but, you know, um, you know there are... You know, there are many foundations in the world, but also governments with a lot of deep pockets, but they just don't put it in the right direction sometimes. Okay, let's come to this group. Who's going to go for it? Say who you are again, please. So my name is uh, Fadi Quran. I'm from Palestine, and I'm from this wonderful group right here. Um, we went into a quick discussion about what would drive people to make change making. And the first thing that everybody agreed upon was a need for people to figure out that there's something they need that they don't have and the aspiration, the sense that they could achieve it. Uh, Sammy mentioned that it's not just figuring out that you have a need, we all have needs, but it's also figuring out that you aspire to see something different happen. And defining that very clearly is central to beginning the change-making process and to entering into that change-making process. But so you realize you have a need, you realize you aspire to something better. That's everybody around the world, basically. That's not enough. What took us to the next process, and this was an interesting debate, is this idea of knowing that there's a unity and a process to build on to achieve that change. Figuring out in your head, understanding there's a path to getting there. It takes that extra step for you to begin moving into becoming a change maker. And for that step to happen, there was a very interesting debate in the group. So one thing that was mentioned by Abdul Basit, for example, is that people need to have a sense of shared purpose and shared values to understand and to have that unity of process to at least define a broader vision into getting there. But there was also, Fatima mentioned the idea of feeling safe. And there was this idea of being a change maker. Mm. If you feel that you're safe and secure in building change, more people would enter into change making. At the same time, most change makers enter into it because they take risks, they're willing to take risks. And so there's this interesting dichotomy. If everyone felt safe into making change, particularly I think in the Middle East, more people would enter into that. But then you also need to have a sense of inclusiveness. This is one of the biggest problems that we faced um, across the region. But all right, so you know their need and aspirations. You know that there's a process and how to get there. You're feeling safe or you know that you need to take risks. What else do you need? And here, very specifically, we began speaking about defining the how. Most change makers, at least in our circle, who enter into that, they're hopeful people to an extent that they can achieve change. But what really pushes them through is having that vision of how do we achieve that change? What are the key steps? And this necessitates a level of awareness. It necessitates a level of feeling empowered. Uh, to become a change maker, you need to not just yourself, but also create within those around you this sense that they are empowered. And after you do that, you move to a shift in the cultural process. And I think this is, to end on this point, I think this is central because 
there is right now within the global dynamic a process to make people, to teach people to feel helpless, to teach people that they can't achieve anything. It's a cultural dynamic that's spreading significantly and there needs to be a cultural transformation in doing that. And that's what change makers often realize in themselves and try to transform to others. Thank you, thank you very much. And it's interesting you, point, you, know, you brought out that issue about risk and safety, because actually it, it's not just in your region or the kind of in the Middle Eastern or uh, you know, Mediterranean region, or it's the same in Europe, that actually sometimes y the risk taking does have a personal cost in terms of your own safety. And I suppose given that we don't live in the last century post-war and think that some of the, I suppose the generation here hasn't experienced the gains or having to fight for the gains that were made 60 years ago, for example. And actually it's about rekindling or re-establishing uh, that sense of common purpose, but that often you don't get people who are immediately gonna be behind you. And that's the difficult one because you step up and you take the first step, but you're never sure there's going to be a group of people behind you. And it's about sometimes about timing, but it's also sometimes, sometimes about resilience and about taking the time to wait for people to join you. And sometimes in this current world, we are so impatient about change uh, that we don't make the time or the effort to actually do what people might call community development, actually working with communities on the ground to enable them to understand the rationale for change and having the confidence for change. But some very, very good points. Thank you very much. Uh, and again, you didn't mention money. So I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately going to go there in a minute. But um, you don't have to. You don't have to. Over to you. I like that. Who's doing this? <laughs> One of you. <laughs> Again, say who you are, please. Hi, everybody. I'm Eduardo. I'm from Italy. Um, in our group, we have a very good discussion, starting with the two main questions. Um, what drives change and how to make it happen? And we try to understand what personally helps drive our, um, our path. And we identified um, two main drivers. Uh, one is negative, which is a sense of loss, someone that we lost in our family, friends, in our uh, acquaintances. Um, a sense of pain, a sense of inequality, so something that really requires some action. But at the same time, there is also a, a positive component, which is hope, hope that things can get better, hope that uh, we can actually make this improvement. At the same time, a feeling of excitement, of trying to do something that was thought impossible, that you know you can achieve something that was very, very difficult to, to achieve. So there are these two uh, drivers that, in our opinion, can drive change. And what can make it happen? Uh, we identify that probably partnership is one of the most important. We need partners who motivate us to maybe sometimes take the first step. We need partners who can complement on the skills that we don't have. And we need partners to give us the money <laughs> to make the change happen. Um, at the same time, we need to define clear goals. What do we actually want to achieve? What is the mission that drives us into our change? And last but not least, we also need a clear message. We need advocacy. We need to state what we are for so that we can bring people uh, with us. So that's it. I try to be brief, as you that's suggested. That's very brief. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and some, you know, obviously some... Uh, major themes that are just, you know, rippling across the room in terms of the key issues about what drives 
the change and what, what you require. Uh, but I also want us to you know, think about during the day, what are the really very practical things people can do as a result of this conversation? It'll be good to get, get there at some point over the next 48 hours. The table at the end, there. Again, say who you are, okay. please. Uh, my name is Lena Al-Maina. I'm from Saudi Arabia. And uh, basically, our discussion came up with uh, a couple of um, factors that um, drive change. So we started off by talking about good psyche. And I gave my example about um, depression. I went through postpartum depression. And um, so obviously, when you feel better and you feel good about yourself, that's what drives change. So having a good psyche uh, that enables you to empower and make the change to others and give a positive um, example to others. And then we discussed also in terms of um, stereotypes. So basically when people feel judged and labeled and stereotyped, they want to make that change because they want to prove that they shouldn't be judged or labeled in a specific way. And that is also a change factor. Um, another thing was the, um, okay, so seeing other people making a change motivates them to make that change. Uh, talking about uh, TED, uh, talks, for example. Um, when you talked about, I'm just going to maybe make a correlation between feeling safe and feeling good. I think that's also a different way of uh, looking at it. Also, um, awareness of an issue. Yeah, so this is important. Awareness of an issue as a big phenomena. So sometimes we look at an issue and we don't realize, we think it's a one but when we realize it's, it's not one case, it's really a phenomena. There are numbers. There's a lot of people who are going through this certain issue, and there's a number related to it. Then that drives us to make that change. We realize it's a phenomena. It's not just one or two isolated cases, but it's actually um, there's a lot of people who are going through a specific uh, problem. Then we get motivated to make that change. Um, personal exposure to an issue, definitely. When you go through something, then obviously you want to make that change because you've gone through the trauma. You've gone through the suffering, and that motivates you to make sure that you don't want others to suffer from it, and that um, is also a factor to change. I think I went through all it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Last but not least. Also, say who you are. Thanks. I always like to be the last because it wraps up. <laughs> it's inclusive, you know. Um, <laughs> thanks for sharing all of these because we, uh, we overlap in many ideas. I'm Ismet from Egypt and uh, I'm a young Mediterranean voice. Uh, we've talked about some elements and then we thought it's pretty much a utopia that we're talking about. So we tried to also be a little bit more realistic and concrete. So I'm not going to explain. I think they're self-explanatory. I'm just going to mention them uh, to save the time. So not being happy with the status quo and having hope and believing that your work can change something and having creativity and critical thinking, um, having a purpose on exactly what do you want to change, um, having intercultural exposure and cultural tolerance for, uh, for others and um, having ethical leadership, being connected to social good since we're human beings and change is also, change making is about human beings, so having the relevance to the society and, and people who live on it, um, having a specific objective, um, and maybe the change is going to come on various steps, but we need to look at the purpose and the specific objective that we're working on, having a vision and a goal, um, a very specific uh, 
what? A very specific, yeah, and to share that go further. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I thought it was a brief. So, and then we thought about the specific elements that we wanted to, to give it a little bit more of realism. Uh, and we thought about the impact evaluation, the process of monitoring and evaluation uh, of, of every change-making processes, um, investing in creativity and education, and education, reformed education, and um, the culture of do-it-yourself, for once to start by themselves, and the value of the local impact, the very little actions of, of interacting with your neighbor, of working on grassroots, since again, I go back to uh, being human beings and one-to-one and -one actions may leave a stronger impact than um, mass messages. I'm done, thanks. Great, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you all, thank you all for um, <laughs> clearly, clearly um, investing the time in that good conversation and I hope you found it useful and it's just that thing about people talk about borders and culture but people are people are people everywhere and that, that sense of actually you can have that conversation that you've just had and look at the symmetry and the same the sameness of what you've all come up with regardless of the borders or the cultures you come from and I think it's really important not to forget that change is messy it's absolutely messy uh, we know that over time and um, we can't um, we can't design it it, as, you've, as many of you said, it comes sometimes out of adversity and it comes out of brave souls or sometimes small brave, a small group of brave souls who come together and have the power. And think about it, there's about 36 of you in this room, 35 of you in the room. Imagine if you stayed in touch and things happened both in this region or your region and you were able to connect with each other and each of you have at least 150 people in your network. Think of the power of that. So within this room, you have over two or 3,000 people that you could call on if you needed to do something or raise a voice about something. So don't, don't, don't lose the fact of that point is that within you as a, as a group here just today, you have the power to leave a lot of voice uh, expertise and movement and sometimes we forget we forget that uh, that actually you have that capability in this room thank you all very much the reason why I kept going about money was that money does matter and, uh, and my point was there more about actually the responsibility of government um, and political leaders and um, wider society to enable change to happen and it was good that people didn't say you know we need money for change to happen but there's something about how do you use capital um, creatively um, to actually enable change to happen. That's something we need to be thinking about because actually, if you think about it, change is often an, an out of necessity about market failure. If I use you know, hard economic terms, the reason why people, you know, you don't have anything or you have needs, it's often the market that fails and change makers are able to rebalance that marketplace often. And often you do need to be thinking about what are the cost implications of what you do, but also what are the implications for government and others to invest in a very different dynamic. And that's why we, you know, we talked about a time for a paradigm shift. That not, it's not only about you, but it's also about the kind of governance, the kind of political leadership that we have that needs to have a paradigm shift in terms of how it behaves, how it articulates, and how it engages with people on the ground. And on that point, I want to introduce Jessica Claver, who, thank you for being here. 
Thank you very much for being here. Yes, he's been one of our European Young Leaders, but also leader of Grunlegs, which has been hugely successful, uh, hugely successful, uh, a surprise candidate, if I may say, uh, may say so, um, of the kind of Macron fee, uh, kind of feel about you, yet not Macron as yet. Uh, and thankfully, hopefully slightly different to him, uh, even though he does provide hope of a sense. But I wanted to ask you to say a few words about, um, so you've heard the conversation we've just had about what drives change making, uh, change making. And I suppose from your perspective, I suppose, given what you've done, what the, the, the rise that you've had, what's important for you to kind of share with the, this group of people about the need to change, the need to change the narrative about intercultural exchange, but also change-making? Here you go. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, I hope you had a great morning session. The presentations were, were very cool. <laughs> I'm so sorry I couldn't be here because I had this train this morning from The Hague to Brussels, but uh, there was a delay more than an hour, but here I am. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to speak to you all. Um, and you asked me to talk about diversity, the, the, the need of change, uh, and what it, what it, what it means. Um, I'm Jesse Klaver, and my father is from Morocco, and my mother is from uh, Indonesian descent, so I'm a bit of a mixed up. <laughs> uh, so when I was 12 years old or something, um, I started wondering, who am I? where I'm from, what's my history. And my grandfather, 100% Dutch, <laughs> white as you can get it, uh, he told me, you know, when somebody asks you where you're from, or where your father is from, or your mother, just tell them you're a citizen of the world. That's the only thing people need to know, you're a citizen of the world. That's the most important. So that was the, the way I was raised. But then I became 16 years old, it was 2001. And in 2001, there was a, a populist uprise in the Netherlands. We had Pim for Time. It was the first populist movement that became very, very strong here in the European Union. So my grandmother, I live with my grandparents, and my grandmother, she's from Indonesia, and she loves to cook. Uh, I think the Indonesian kitchen is the best kitchen there is, I'm sorry. Uh, and she is, yeah, I understand, I understand, but some, you have <laughs> some things are facts. And my, another, fact, another fact in life is that my grandmother is the best cook in the world. Uh, and she, she loved to cook for, for me and the family and the friends and neighbors. And before 2001, uh, people in our neighborhood thought sometimes that the way she cooked, it smells. You know, when you used some kind of herbs or uh, shrimp paste, it, it, it smells like hell. But it tastes great. But after 2001, it didn't just smell, no, it was a cultural problem. If you want to cook like this, go back to your own country. So just within 12 months or th something, I saw society change. And the question this morning is, what drives people into change making? But I saw in this year, you, you can get deprived in, when you see this, oh my God, what's happening? Is our society, do we get lost? Is the society I lived in, the society I was, a, you know, where I could say I'm a citizen of the world, is it gone? But I don't think so. It gave me hope. Because in these 12 months, there was just one political leader who changed the narrative in a wrong way, but still he changed the narrative. So if right-wing populists can change the narrative just in a couple of months, why couldn't we do it? So... 2001, for, my political to, for me to get uh, politically involved 
um, politically um, uh, uh, to, to, to grow up as a politician. It was really important. It showed me what words can do. You know, we, you need a lot of money, you need the good laws, you need a good educational system, but just words can change the world. The way you address people, the way you tell your stories, you share the stories, you connect to people. This is what makes change. And I think the populists the last 20 years in the European Union, I think they were a lot better than all the progressives in telling this story. Not my story, but a story about change. And also a story about hope, not my hope. So my wishes for us is that we, in the next coming decades, that we as a new generation will fight these populists, that we claim back the hope, and we'll change the world. And we will all be citizens of the world. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to the upcoming hours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Time's up. I'm afraid. I'm sorry. I'd love to engage in a conversation, given what he's done, what he's done but let's do that over the time that we are together. With, there's coffee outside, um, tea and coffee, and I need you back in here by quarter to, quarter to 12, please. So thank you very much for your time. I continue the conversation out there, but then I'll come back. I will come and chase you at quarter two, <laughs> if you forget. Thank you. Other things will work. Great. Thank you very much for at least coming back. You haven't disappeared into the sunshine, which is a good sign. Um, we, we build on... Um, let's make sure everyone's got a seat. We build on uh, this morning's uh, conversation about what drives people into change-making to kind of shift our lens towards arts, culture, and intercultural exchange. Um, you know, it's, obvi it's obvious that from the surveys that have been done by the Annalyn Foundation, especially in the Mediterranean and you know, Northeast uh, uh, and Middle East, that intercultural exchange is seen as a very valuable and important form to, and a mechanism and a tool to deal with um, tackling stereotypes, uh, being able to share people's experiences more readily and to create a sense of common purpose and common meaning. Um, and therefore it has great value at one level. It's about how do you turn, move that into something that becomes more than that, into practical action as and or how do you create the ability to create social movements but also, as many of you said, to create greater awareness about the importance of uh, acting uh, when change needs to take place. Um, someone very famously said that Art, freedom, and creativity will change society faster than politics. And I think over time, we've seen and witnessed that um, many, many, on many occasions, how, um, you know, the cultural sphere, the artistic sphere, if you think about Banksy, you know, uh, you know uh, an artist who will do things on a street and create a noise around an issue through to graffiti artists all across the world, through to all range of kind of uh, creativity that's actually, whether it's in school, the streets, or an institution. So this conversation's about beyond cliches. So let's move beyond cliches about this, but actually thinking practically, but thinking also realistically about the conditions for artistic creative freedom and how does that drive inclusivity? And how does that then also be become a lever for positive social change over time? So we have a number of contributors for you. I'm going to kick off with a colleague, 
um, who runs um, one of, I think, Europe's uh, most significant cultural art artistic centers here in Brussels called Beaux-Arts. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely, lovely place. He's very lucky. He's got a great place to work. And if, you're, if you have time, visit the center if you can. Um, and he, in his institution, they have the ability to make the world really small. And what I mean by that, he brings all aspects of the world into this one place to enable people to digest, consume, and access arts and culture and creativity from across the world, but also often with an underlying political message. Over to you, Paul, first. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Uh, welcome in Brussels, uh, in this uh, uh, special neighborhood of the European Union in uh, headquarters. Um, next time, I would like to invite you to do this debate in an art center than, uh, uh, than in this uh, Sofitel. I think it's important the environment why you discuss uh, and, uh, and why, uh, in the first place, I, the mobility, and that's a very important element in, in the sub subsidiarity of culture in the European Union. And certainly in the debate, we will have uh, how Europe will engage itself in the coming years, what uh, in these meanings and discussions you have these coming two days. I see uh, Annalind is, is the main partner together with. Uh, the Friends of Europe, a think tank, to think about how to do. It, it was the same for me, and not to go too long, um, uh, as being the main art center, and you will be uh, at the Royal Palace uh, for dinner, and the Queen is, uh, is take honor of the most important competition and, uh, in, in classical music. I would say Western classical music. And I was uh, I must say, globally impressed to see that there's a global shift in our cultural um, experience, uh, certainly for Western art, to Asia and transatlantic, America, Asia, but uh, still not with the South, Mediterranean, and Africa. So that's really challenging. How can we share in a society where we have no hierarchy anymore in the arts uh, to share better these different activities? and. Uh, I would refer to, uh, to a French uh, philosopher, Bourdieu, uh, how uh, you can combine to be very exclusive in, in what we are doing in the art centers, and, and, and particularly in my art center when I was in charge and became re responsible for Beaux-Arts. Uh, there was no discussion as such in our mission and vision to share what was announced here in the debate of today. So it had to be a big transformation in maybe one of the most cosmopolitan cities as Brussels. I'm living in uh, St. Jos, St. Jos is not so far from here, uh, one of the neighborhoods of Brussels where we speak today 153 languages. So the big discussion was, and I must say globally, for all main art centers in Europe, and I would say even not European Union, but also the European space, how to deal with these challenges, uh, and not especially in London and Paris, I would say globally in all mid-side cities and communities. And so that's uh, an experience, one, and what is the, the our, and in a special year, cultural heritage year of Europe this year, huh? what is heritage of Europe today uh, for the European Union? What will be the leading projects? What is the relation to innovation and creativity in, in that? Well, how can we innovate the existing heritage we have to share? And how we do that in 
uh, an urban environment where we are living today. And, uh, and certainly f uh, being, uh, uh, as a, I would say, symbol, art centers were mostly like churches, uh, opera houses, very nearby, I would say, power centers. Uh, we are neighbor of the Royal Palace, the Parliament, everything around. Uh, people are not living around our place, so it's, uh, I would say, monocultural reality. Uh, it's museums. And that's not sharing with people who live there every day. Uh, shop, uh, shops, you see it in, and that's uh, a reality of Brussels with a non, uh, a really relative poor downtown and people left Brussels uh, to live in the neighborhoods. And so this mixed city of how we could live together again, because we know only uh, two words in my mother language, Flemish, uh, Dutch, Flemish, uh, is apartheid, you know, from South Africa. Uh, and Molenbeek. Molenbeek, nobody knows what it means. It's two Flemish words now uh, who became very important in, in my modern language. And that's the other side of the canal zone, downtown Brussels. And how we relate with this uh, perception, how to live together and how to work. And that's uh, in the first place that we try to have another approach, a more engaged approach. And it's a learning process also for my teams and even on the level of education, uh, where we discuss that at university and art schools. Because today, the classical art schools, if you have, uh, we, we created even a Syrian um, a refugee orchestra, when you have a new generation, because 11 people were displaced in Syria, many of them will go back, but uh, many will stay. Question is, when their children want to study lute, where do we study that in the normal conservatory, high school, university? So it's a big debate in how we transform, because the art school, the arts institution I'm leading, is already a process of the best of what you can get, beside being sociocultural integration to be inclusive, what was said, but at the same time, there is already the education process. Uh, uh, and that's not only in the Belgian system, it's, uh, I would say, all over Europe, how we can make that diverse. So I'm more giving some uh, fast, because it's too, too long to go in detail, I would say macroeconomic approaches from what we are with the different stakeholders, if I would use that not-so-nice word, how we can come together to make this transformation a reality, not for myself in Brussels, but all over Europe. And it's not an easy task, because the classical cultural institutions, and I can say it here, uh, <coughs> honestly, we still are very conservative. Uh, museums uh, uh, con make work mostly and do research on the objects they have in their museum. And I think uh, that uh, two major institutions will open. One of them is the Humboldt Forum in uh, Berlin, and we will have a real debate on multiculturality in society, not only on the highest policy, policy level, but also in community level, uh, on changing names of colonial people in, in Berlin. That is, started already today, and how we implement that in a better communication with all the citizens to bring them a part of that. And one of these projects is what was a too high level maybe discussion on European values, narratives. We, uh, who st was started by the president of the European Com Commission, the former president Barroso, uh, we started to implement it on a daily basic way 
uh, where we start to, to connect with 100,000 young people with the project um, uh, of uh, Next Generation Please. So we had a festival uh, last 10 days where we worked with uh, uh, young adults, schools, uh, where we tried to, to bring together politicians, scientists, and artists in that debate of citizenship, values to share how, when you cannot write it anymore, uh, cognitive skills, when you write, it's, it's very, at the end, very limited. So at a certain way, when you cannot explain it anymore in writing, you can maybe transform that also in images. And it's a very good exercise we started to do for the last two, three years. And we were connecting with about 100,000 young people over the last three years all over the country, not only in a city as Brussels, but also in white, white schools outside of Brussels where there are no foreigners of new communities. And so it's not an easy task to find the right balance. So uh, another thing is UMAP, United Music of Brussels, where 250 professional musicians in Brussels, uh, we, we ask them to go in community work and to, to make them engage. It's not easy when you are your whole life making opera as a, a symphony orchestra to decide to do another way and to start to do co-creation with young people having other experience and so on. Singing Brussels is that we discovered more than 80 choirs in Brussels in the different communities to let them come together uh, on education level and so on. So I can give a certain number. It's a lot of engagement to transform the mental shape from the board to the older people in, in our uh, institution today. I think it's an interesting model that we try to share with others. So if you would be interested uh, as young leaders in the different fields of education, of processes, uh, to be engaged in, in not only in the arts, but also in, in the democratic uh, decision-making of dialogue and so on. Uh, I, we could share, you could come and see uh, these different models uh, uh, from different projects we do today at Bozar. So that would, to start for first round table, and even if you are there for some few days, uh, Thomas van Braspay is here, uh, is in charge for the whole dialogue in the Mediterranean world, uh, where we try to work on different narratives, co-creation, project we can do here and there in the region, and what we try to do on an horizontal way, because when you are engaged as an art director, curator, you mostly go first place for the best quality of the, what the artist is output. Uh, excellence. And I would say, if I was referring to the Queen Elizabeth competition of Belgium, uh, for me, it's the conscious uh, the s to go above virtuosity and to make a better human uh, person, not only to be the best musician. And to be that, you have to be a good musician to be a part of the community. And you can take leadership. The best artists are very responsible people. They have to coach their whole career in the community. So that's an interesting model as a role an artist can play through his whole life as a scientist and a musician to make that happen. And so on that level, it's, it's a, a, a very important engagement globally, but what we can do, how we can do, uh, and it's giving uh, these uh, few um, uh, proposals we can share in the discussion uh, this morning. Paul, thank you very much for that. I think your point is really well made about 
that are often cultural practitioners, leaders who run institutions, artistic institutions, cultural institutions, who often forget their civic responsibility. They are built in the mode of actually this is about a commercial venue or a commercial enterprise and you don't change the demographic of who visits or you don't even have a sense of personal responsibility to make art accessible and creativity accessible, both in terms of being able to uh, inspire people but also to open people's you know, minds and broaden people's horizons. And your two examples are, I think, a testament to the kind of leadership that's required now to think about institutions like yours as having a much more of a responsibility to reach out and beyond the usual suspect, but also thinking about your role as being a civic actor rather than simply a purveyor of art. But I'm sure we'll have a conversation about that in a moment. Just to say to you that we have some change in the program that both Nabil and Yasmina couldn't be here today for health reasons, um, uh, but we have other speakers and in particular Eduardo, who is one of our European young leaders, uh, who's going to speak next. I'm not going to say a lot about him because I think he has a lot to say. Good morning, everyone. <coughs> I'm so delighted to be here. Um, um, just first of all, if you, if you could, guys, put your hands up if you do not like music. Anyone? No? Uh, <laughs> now, okay. Could you please put your hand up if you do not like theater or cinema? No one? No? You, you, you don't like the cinema? You don't like? Sorry? What? Fine, fine. <laughs> um, or if you do not like, uh, if you do not enjoy beautiful architecture, can you please put your hand up? No? Well, uh, it's quite obvious that no one would put their hands up in, in this kind of thing. And I am sure you all would agree that if we ask these questions in the broad society, very few people would say, I don't like music. There is always some sort of music that everyone will like, yeah? Uh, and, and, and there is a reason for this, and it happens that the arts are absolutely inherent to the human being. From the very early stages of humanity, these primitive, primitive men were already drawing in their caves these animals. They were playing their drums, they were playing rhythms, and they would be um, uh, doing some sort of artistic expression, because that's purely what the art is, it's just a human, strong way of expression. Um, that's why art is always going to survive, because it's just so deeply human. Now, we have to encourage it, because um, it's a very powerful tool that we have. Um, the, the real strength of the arts resides in that it creates emotion. You all can recall for sure one moment in your life in, in which a particular song or music brought you to tears. Because music brings you to tears. Or a particular work of art of some sort. It could be a painting, or it could be a play, or it could be something that really creates an emotional uh, effect in you. Um, this is... Um, particularly interesting since you all will be aware that research shows how emotionally influenced are all the decisions that we take every day. There is a very strong emotional component when we take any decision. This means in every route we take in our life, there is an emotional component which is very strong. 
Now, um, I can't stop being amazed how some people have managed to create passion and emotion amongst a large amount of the population for something like electronics. Something that is far away from humanity, like you say, gadget, electronics. These people from Apple Computer have managed that millions of people queue outside the shop because they want to get the latest model of iPhone. My question is, if these people from Apple managed to do that with something like electronics, we artists, are we not entitled to get a much greater result doing music or doing painting or doing theater, which is something totally human? Um, there is also another side um, to the arts, and it's that the arts are always regarded and considered as something that brings humanity to a more elevated stage. The arts make us closer to God, and that's why all religions in the world sing when they pray. Yeah? So the, 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 the arts elevate the human soul and, and, and make us feel more alive, makes us, make us feel more um, uh, they, they, they make us uh, uh, awake admiration, and they make us feel a better person. Now, it is in our hands, the hands of the artists and the hands of the entire society, in fact, to use this emotional element that the arts have and this transcendent uh, element that the arts have for the right purpose. You all know that uh, real and absolutely real change in society only happens by people following ideals. If you think of uh, the real turning point moments in the history of humanity, um, you can think of the existence, if we talk about religions, or the, the Prophet Muhammad, or if we talk about Jesus Christ in the Christianity, how those people and all the people who have followed them and their ideals have radically turned the corner in humanity. There are other examples, not so radical, but also very influential. If you think of the I have a dream speech, how much influence this speech has had in the history. Now, we just made the 50-year anniversary and we still talk about it. And in this regard, I would like you to watch something. Please, can we watch this video? Thank <laughs> you. 
I hope you enjoy that. <laughs> it's quite, quite impactful music, isn't it? Now, if you take this paper, I just uh, ask someone to, to put a paper on your, on your tables with the text of what they are singing. This, this is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, yeah? I invite you all to read this text. I would just like to point out a few of the lines. Uh, the, the text is not from Beethoven, it's, it's from Schiller. Yeah? Uh, and one of, the, one of the lines says, all men shall become brothers. Whoever has been lucky enough to become a friend to a friend, whoever has found a beloved wife, let him join our songs of praise. Be embraced, you millions. These powerful messages combined with this music have a, in the earlier times when this was first performed, they had a very strong impact in the audiences. The, there is another good example. Um, a few months ago, I performed in, in, with an orchestra in Valencia, uh, Ravel's concerto for the for, uh, piano concerto for the left hand. For those of you who don't know anything about it, this is a piano concerto commissioned by Paul Wittgenstein. This was a, a, a pianist, a well-known pianist in, in Austria. He went to the First World War. He lost his right arm. If, if you happen to have any close friends or family members who are musicians, you will, maybe you will know how extremely depressing for a musician is not to be able to perform, not to be able to play. Because playing is such a strong, it becomes such a strong way of expression for a player that if you are not able to do it, you become very depressed. Well, this man, Paul Wittgenstein, fought the fact not only that he had lost an arm, but he fought to keep his career as a pianist with one arm. He arranged himself most, uh, very many pieces for, be, for, 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 for the left hand to be played on the piano, and he commissioned a good number of concertos for the left hand. If you hear to this Ravel concerto, which is one of the greatest masterpieces of the piano repertoire, you would never believe there is only one man with one hand playing the piano. If I was listening, I would think, oh, I think there's a third hand there. It's just so well written. It's just another example of how powerful the story behind the music could be. My whole point about this is, that if we manage to convey the strong messages that the music and the surroundings of the music have to the entire society, and I mean not to the regular audiences of art, not to the regular concert goers, not to the regular um, uh, museum goers. No, I don't mean to target the minorities either. I think it's fine to target minorities, but no, no, I don't mean targeting disabled people. I don't mean targeting children. I don't mean targeting elder people. No, I mean targeting the entire society. I think the arts should be targeted to everyone. Everybody should believe that the art is something that is in their interest, because there is such a strong substance in, 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 in the creation and the production of art for everybody. This can be tremendously inspiring for 
a large amount of the population. It can lead to put ideas in their minds. It can lead to think them, oh, maybe I should be more active in my life. Maybe I should create a company here that will help. Maybe I should create an NGO. Maybe if I follow my, my ideas in the same way that Paul Wittgenstein did, maybe I could do this that will help the society. Maybe, you know, so the entire frame of mind of the, of the whole population could have a big shift. And I believe uh, only when, when we have um, managed to reach the entire population, pass on all these messages, we will have truly fulfilled our mission as artists. Thank you. Thank you, Roland. Also, thank you very much for stepping in at the last minute. I'm not going to take away from the message of your video, but it was really reminding me of bad haircuts in the 1970s. And also, it was all white. Um, but hey, let's not ponder on that for a moment. Um, but um, useful messages about what you're, what you're in terms of the, the power of arts in and across society. And I'm sure there are, because I mean, when you look at what's happening, not only in Europe, Europe's had a, a strong tradition, uh, especially, especially through uh, funding from the European Commission for supporting intercultural dialogue and a lot of creativity on the ground. But in the kind of uh, Mediterranean region, North, North Africa, etc., you know there's a real buzz taking place. I mean, from what I've read, the kinds of initiatives and creativity that's taking place is a kind of a renaissance taking place uh, across the region, which I'm sure many of you have encountered that are in this room. But it shows you that actually there is a real um, um, energy that's weaving through both regions that are using art and cultural expression to think about how social change can take place. And I want to go right through to Rehab, if I may. Um, school teacher, you work directly with young people and communities on the ground. And so it's a kind of a different perspective. So we've had the cultural institution, we've had a, a, a you know, a, an artist, if you like, perspective, and I want to now go to you in terms of a very community-focused perspective about the importance of arts and creativity um, as a purveyor of social change over time. Thank you. Well, at the beginning, I tried to think about this topic in this panel. I looked at the topic and I tried to think what is happening art-wise or culture-wise in my country. Mm. And I thought that there is a shift. If I try to think back in history, I don't remember prior to 2011 any grassroots arts initiatives, only those who are unspoken of. I don't recall any poetry events that are free, that you have topics, any topic that you can talk about. I do not remember school initiatives with students having theater clubs, singing clubs. But what I remember is that if you ask any Tunisian, I think we have some Tunisians here also, what is the symbol of the revolution now? They would say a song by Amel Mathluthi. We all know it, Kilm Chihara. It has been sang in the UN Council. It means my word is free. But also we remember a picture, which is of an old man holding bread, trying to shoot a policeman. He, was, he became like a symbol of the revolution called Captain, Captain Khobza in Tunisian, which means Captain Bread like Captain America. So these are the two things that actually stay in our minds. Because art, I believe, is something that reaches the soul. It's something that we cannot forget. Now, the change in perspective and the change in the scene in our country and all of the Mediterranean region, I would say, or the MENA region, 
is a change that takes me to the first question of this panel, the conditions that make artistic expression flourish. I think the first condition, according to my experience and our, of course, experience, is freedom and democracy. If you're not safe, if you do not feel safe to express yourself, you will not express yourself, period. But if you feel you are secure enough to express what, of course, art, I'm not so talking only about singing, but it could also be painting, it can be through theater, it can be through cinema. Now, there is another word that some of you mentioned earlier, which is inclusivity. Now, before the revolution, no one ever talked about personal freedom, let alone minorities. In our country now, there's a huge debate about minorities, sexual minorities, the LGBTQI plus plus community, the, of course, the women cases, the racial minorities in our country, and these have been raised mainly through arts. Now, recently we had a queer film festival led by one of the organizations fighting for LGBT community in our country. It was a huge success. It's a first of its kind in all of the Arab region. It, at the beginning we thought it will not happen because it's something considered as a taboo, not just in the Arab region, but all over the world, but it did. People were able to express themselves. Movies that we have that have been banned from the country actually were filmed. People when, were when able to that? watch them. When did they? When did they? It was around queen. December. And you didn't have protests. You had no problems about. It was a banned about. You know. It was a bit, of course, low key. Not everyone <laughs> heard of it, but okay. the, the civil society community heard of it, and there was a bit of press co coverage, but. I'm not saying that there isn't a faction of the society who, of course, said this is an outrage and this, not should be, this should not be talked about, of course. But why I mentioned this, let me stand up. Why I mentioned this is that because this is what spurs change. If you spur dialogue, even if it's heated dialogue, even if they're saying, no, we're not, but at least they're thinking about it. That's the change. If we're thinking about things that were taboo once before, I think that can spur change. I will give an example of a movie called Beauty and the Dogs in Tunisia. La Belle et la Meute. It is a movie about a girl who gets raped, a young girl, and no one in the street helps her at the beginning, except for one young man who's looking at a teenager crying with blood running through between her thighs, and no one is understanding what's happening. But then the whole movie is about her journey. The way that she went to the police station, they didn't believe her, they said, it's your fault. The way her family did not stand by her. But this movie actually spurred discussions within the, the government and society. So although we have been trying to call for the, uh, to annul the law that allows rapists to marry their victims to, as a matter to hush the topic, as much as we talked about it in panels and in political meetings, this movie did much work than we all have been doing in, in like years. This movie raised the topic and the law is now officially banned. No, no rapist can marry his victim or her victim, of course. So what I wanted to say is that art is the key for change. If you want inclusiveness, if you want to include people, it's something that sticks to your mind and that sticks to your heart. So 
Dancing, for example. We have a dancer in our country called Rujdi Bilgesmi. He has been performing all over the globe. And he is dancing women dancing, women folk dancing. That is uh, used to be, of course, just women in during uh, weddings that are dancing, Tunisian folk dancing. But he is trying to cherish that, that tradition. Although he's fi facing, he said, even death threats in our country because he is being effeminate. But he is still continuing, and he's fighting the fight. I can see the change even in my father, who is admiring him. He's uh, from another generation, and he admires him. He thinks that that's good. So if he changed my father's opinion, I think art can change anyone's opinion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Some really powerful message in there. Can I just, because um, this is not meant to be, you know, it's meant to be a whole conversation around this room, okay? So we'll try and kind of engage you all in this. Bef I, I've got some other people I want to bring in, but I just want to get some reactions from some of you around the tables in terms of your own experiences of, as, as, as Rehab says, you know, art being the key to social progress and change. And they are pow very powerful examples, but those examples aren't unique to Tunisia. I mean, you, s you, know, you see all cr across the world how cinema, um, just as I mentioned, Banksy's art, you know, graffiti. There are those moments that actually have a real kind of, um, it's, it's both enigmatic but really powerful as a device in terms of making people think differently about stuff. You're, you're championing it. Say who you are. Ayman Mahana from Lebanon. Um, definitely agreeing with everything we, we heard. And um, one of the clearest evidence at, uh, of the power of art is also the increased attempts to censor art that um, produce the kind of social and societal change you mentioned. At the same time, I also concur with the idea that art can challenge uh, societal taboos. I know I was in touch with Friends of Europe who were asking for uh, our filmmaker Nadine Labaki's contact details to be with us. Actually, she couldn't because she was uh, winning the Prix du Jury in Cannes for a movie related Great. to how the Lebanese society treats with lots of levels of racism, uh, Syrian refugee, racism, xenophobia, uh, Syrian refugees. And at the same time, it definitely opens the whole debate about uh, refugees all over the world. And that's the movie she won. A couple of months earlier, another Lebanese filmmaker won um, in Venice, in the Mostra, also about the Christian-Palestinian, Christian-Muslim relationship during the Lebanese civil war, a topic that remained totally taboo and censored continuously uh, from art. So this idea is very important and we're all fighting for it. However, the question is not necessarily only about the dialogue through art. It's the dialogue within the artist community because each regime, each society, has also extremely conservative pieces of art. The regime singers, the regime's um, uh, actors in Egypt who are glorifying, for example, human rights violations through art as well. And also art that is very much connected to the largest uh, private corporates that is not necessarily promoting the same messages that we're talking about right now. What kind of initiatives are taking place within the art community, the culture community, to, to, to launch a dialogue within the community exactly on the meaning of art? Mm. That's, uh, are, are we aware of some examples? Can we also think about how to include conservative artists in the discussion that we're talking about right now? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's a really, really important point, uh, actually, about censorship and how you do include. Do you want to come in on that one, uh, Paul? Briefly. I can be very short on that. European Parliament, uh, we were late uh, with the topic of public diplomacy related to cultural diplomacy. Uh, there is a new strategy. That's what I was referring to the co-creation. I think on one hand, 
we have this long-standing tradition from what we say today, propaganda. It's not only using by some countries you were referring. The Americans did it, China is doing it, uh, Russians do it. It's, it's, a, it's a way of doing. And I think Mogherini decided very well, and she did it um, two years ago when she was announcing that strategy, we, together with Elisha Fak. It's a beautiful text. Uh, when she did her speech, it was a political speech with all the ethical questions, and Elisha Fak did a real art speech as an intellectual related to that. So it's the balance. I think we have to take uh, responsibility on that level, how we engage with the official way of working with bilateral way in, in diplomacy and how we can find a balance with the communities. And that's a very delicate uh, way, but I think that uh, artists can do that. And I think you can do it in a way without provocation, but without censorship. And so it's, it's, it's sophisticated to do, but I think uh, we have a, a great part of respons responsibility to help and to discuss that in, in a way of uh, without form of subsidiarity. Without a form of subsidy, that's interesting. I'll bring you in because I think one of the mo most important things is that in the margins of any community, you get such a rich vein of cultural expression, whether that's traditional or modern or just simply trying to invert um, things, whether it's the, the the dancer, for example, who would have come from the margins, has become commercialized globally, but in the country having potential difficulties, but actually become very popular. And that happens everywhere, right? And that can be someone that is very brave to do that and um, until they break the ceiling of success to a certain extent and they have greater confidence. But how do you mobilize communities uh, in, in ways which is, as you describe, that enables artists to kind of reach into those marginal areas, but actually to support communities that are involved in that, what people see as marginal activity. But we have that conversation and discussion. Gentlemen at the back, again, say who you are, then I'll bring others in. Well, thank you. Uh, Sami Horani from Jordan. I have a story to tell. We're currently working on, um, on a portal called Sukhfan, or a mm. market for art in Jordan. And this is something that very similar, if you know Etsy, it's like more of like a marketplace for artwork and handicrafts for artisans. Uh, in Jordan and also we're, we're expanding it in the region. So one of the artists that we're working on, she's a Syrian refugee. Actually, we're working with many of them. And one of the things that we have been seeing once we, you know, we are doing like this preliminary launch, and we're seeing a lot of positive reaction to all the handicrafts and the artwork that's happening and coming up from that Syrian refugee. And very positive comments to, to her work and even to the concept of like being a Syrian refugee in Jordan. And that's bridging the gap between Jordanians and Syrian refugees. Uh, it's be, uh, uh, promoting acceptance, integration. So art and all the handicrafts are being, I mean, it's solving a problem that a lot of panels and conferences are not solving just through nice products, beautiful and high quality. And I think this is where a lot of tools can be just done in order to solve a lot of integration issues, a lot of inclusiveness issues, a lot of diversity issues through art. So just like a story that I wanted to share with no, you. No, thank you, thank you for doing that. But also it, it, it points to the fact that sometimes Policymakers don't think creatively enough about how to support the dynamism within a community and also get so stuck in bureaucracy and bureaucratic thinking that they make processes so hard to reach and enable entrepreneurs to actually skill up. 
A, a grant of 5,000 euros can have a huge impact on someone in the region, absolutely, in terms of being either fledgling through to being more creative and much more successful. But often, funders and policymakers really do not think creatively enough. Um, lady here, I'll bring all of you, and I promise you, I, have, I do remember you. Uh, your name again, please. Uh, my name is Sana Aude. I'm Palestinian. I'm a professor at New York University and also a professor at NYU, New York University of Abu Dhabi. I just want to follow up on the theme of uh, censorship and also the um, ghettoization of, of the art communities and art. I mean, the art is, we know, of course, the values of the art, but also there is... Uh, um, the negative edge of the art, where it's, uh, you know, if we talk about Europe or the U.S., we, we know that the, uh, the art market is also very controlled. They're very monop monopolized, so it's very hard for diversity. It's very hard to include um, the other, let's say. And now we live in a very global societies, and, and, and especially with the refugees, especially with immigration, uh, there is a more urgent matter of really including other voices, and especially in the art community, because we understand how important it is. Yet it is it's still curated in based on the Western canon. So we need there is really not just in terms of um, you know including people and some voicing uh, voices and tokens. I'm not talking about the toilet, but about the the uh, movement, but also about discourses, talking about the art rather than saying primitive art or or talking about all like early possibility and so on. So there's so much diversified and valued art in many communities around the world. And it's, it's about time to really change the discourses to decriminalize the world of art in terms of, you know, imposing these categorization and these, these, these powerful um, art festival that only curates and, and imposes a certain perspective. So, I mean, don't you, but I agree with your point, but actually wait, because the, 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 there's a certain market, commercial art market, which is hugely powerful, worth billions across the world, and controlled probably by just about five men in the world. And, you know, it's hugely successful. We know that. But actually waiting for that is is like, you know, waiting for God. It's, not, it's never going to happen. And I think it's more about how do you use technology to create some of the access to communities being able to create their own narrative and create a very different dialogue. Imagine if someone were to fund that, you know, some of the refugees, the Syrian refugees, let's take that as an example, that have crossed um, those treacherous seas and use that journey as a cultural expression, as an artistic expression, which enables people to understand where they've come from, some of the hopes and aspirations. Wow, wouldn't that be a powerful story to tell and actually become an exchange for, for themselves, but also the communities they're, they're coming into? But why not think more creatively about how do you art fund our art in that way, which is out of the usual norm? And I think that, you know we might make much more traction if we were to think differently about it. Um, gentleman there and then gentleman at the back. So uh, I'm Rory. I'm from the UK, and I we work. Uh, I work with a group of young artists from around. And your uh, name is sorry again. Rory, Rory. from the UK. Uh, I work with a group of young artists from around uh, Europe, and we were originally part of a Erasmus Plus program, and then turned into a community of our own and, and a network of our own. Um, and I think one of the most uh, one of the things we keep realizing as a group of young people really interested to share art with other young people and trying to get other people to express themselves is that so many people go into the arts or the art sector with the intention of 
of promoting inclusivity or promoting a certain value, but then when they're promoting that, they don't exercise those values themselves. So if mm. you're organizing a program about inclusivity and you go to a country and say, you need to be more inclusive, or you go to a, a small local community and say, you need to be more inclusive, um, you don't, and you don't ask the people that you're encouraging to be inclusive how they think they could be more inclusive or how minorities could be included in the process itself, I think you're complicit in part of the problem itself. And I think you're actually making the problem much worse by you'll have a group of engaged people, but you'll turn them away from your message or perhaps even turn them against your message so that they'll be fighting against you. And I think for as long as that's happening and for as long as this, you're not like constantly asking yourself, am I a part of the problem that we're trying to sort of uh, counter, I guess, um, then I don't think any of the problems that we face in the arts, or we in the arts, sorry, I don't mean to make it sound really like exclusive, but I don't think anybody who is organizing something like this will ever change what they're trying to change. Um, so yeah, I did want to say that. I think it's, it's a constant, you should be self-evaluating constantly, and as a group, of course, like a group evaluation, but more importantly, um, as yourself, be um, evaluating what you're doing in your art. So. And is your network, now that you've evolved into a network, is your network self-aware? Is yeah, no, self-critical? Yeah, absolutely, so I, I think, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, and, and I think that's, um, before we go somewhere, we, we sort of, we have an idea, of course, we want in, an inclusive Europe and we want uh, young people to be able to express themselves. Uh -huh. um, and, and we do take that to a community, of course, and um, we do that and, and we're very aware of that. Um, but we won't start that until we've spoken to the people that we want to reach out to and we've asked them what, because maybe they actually already have a system in place to do that, but we've completely ignored it or we're just not aware of it. Um, and we also sometimes, which is the most frustrating thing when we're applying for funds, we get told by funding agencies that um, what we're doing, to, is to, we're too naive, this isn't how the world works, which we're trying to say, it is how the world works, sadly, but I mean, it's being countered by people like you who are telling us that we're doing it wrong. So um, yeah, and, and I think the, the way that we get money doesn't, doesn't really reflect the way that we work, so we have to work very resourcefully and we don't have much money Indeed. available. Which is fine for us, because we're artists, so we can be creative and we can try and do things, but also we do need money to, uh, I don't know, go to, to another country and then yeah. take And that's at that point I was making about the need for a cult, kind of a mindset shift amongst funders mm. to think differently yeah. uh, about the power of this kind of loose, expressive, um, self-agency kind of approach that takes place, which isn't dominated by the, the units of impact you're going to measure, mm. but actually understanding the richness of the exchange that takes place. Sometimes that's important and enough, actually, but it's about risk and public money and yeah. foundation money, not feeling bold enough to actually reach into the kind of expression that you're engaged in. Um, thank you very much. The gentleman at the back there. Again, your name? My name is uh, Abdelbas Ben Hassan. I'm the president of the Arab Institute for Human Rights in Tunis. I totally agree uh, on what has been said about the importance of uh, arts and culture, but I think that uh, I want to add something. Uh, culture and arts are not a priority in uh, most of the southern countries. They are not a priority in the public policies, in the budgeting, and also in the urbanism design. Our cities are not designed to host uh, cultural and artistic centers and spaces. And I think that really we need to address this issue. Uh, the Arab Institute for Human Rights uh, in 2014 started an experience in uh, uh, a poor neighborhood in Tunisia. We decided in 2014, our institute was founded in 1989. We have in our board famous organizations from Arab societies, but also six UN agencies. We are well established in Tunisia, 
in a very fancy and uh, uh, rich place. And we decided to move to very poor neighborhood, popular neighborhood, and we established our training and cultural center to do two things. First, to bring new people and new young, and mainly new young people to culture and human rights and citizenship culture, and also try to confront the human rights discourse to the reality of people. And if I can uh, tell something about the impact of this new, of course, very difficult experience, because conservatism is not only in societies, conservatism is also inside the civil society world and the human rights organizations. We suffered from some stigma from even the civil society organizations. Mm -hmm. But if I, uh, and, uh, if I will talk about one impact of this move of the Arab Institute for Human Rights, I discovered the importance and the power of education and the power of arts and the power of culture for young marginalized people in partnership with the Ministry of Culture, with some civil society organizations, with artists, and with also some, uh, 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 some uh, institutions like Microsoft, uh, uh, Alcatel, and uh, Juventus of Turin, we started organizing clubs of music clubs, football clubs, uh, theater clubs for these for this young people and we discovered the importance of establishing spaces for culture and human rights mm -hmm. to bring new people to the values of human rights, equality, freedom, uh, inclusion, all these uh, issues. I think that we need to reinvest the social spaces we are investing the, uh, the technology space, the cyberspace. We are investing the uh, economy spaces. We are developing leadership on everything. But I think we don't want to lose something that can develop not only a blind leadership, but a leadership based on values that can change the societies. Are you hopeful about what's happening right now? Because, I mean, the point you make about urban design, right, I think is absolutely key. Because in, in, in the southern neighborhood, you can see when you visit some of the cities mm. that even the new spaces aren't being designed for cultural expression or artistic expression or community exchange, if you like, other than the traditional places of worship or, or, or traditional cultural spaces. Are you kind of, given the, the, the amount of exchange that's happening between Europe through the European Union and the project, and its southern neighborhood. This notion of urban design, which we, you know, in Europe, there's a lot of experience about the importance of changing urban design uh, for this. Is there, I mean, what, what, A, is that happening? And B, are you hopeful, very sh in very brief terms? First, I'm always hopeful because it's not okay. a choice for me. Sure, I am good. working on okay, human question rights. Then. Okay. In human rights, for me, uh, to be, uh, to have uh, hope, for me, it's not a choice. I need to be hopeful in everything, in every moment really to try to achieve something in our uh, societies, very, in very difficult situations. I think that culture is 
something deeply rooted in our uh, civilizations. Let me uh, uh, give you an example. In 1846, Tunisia was the second country in the world to abolish, abolish slavery. And writers, arts, played a major role yeah. in developing awareness and promoting the idea of abolishing slavery. In all the Arab countries, in the 19th and the 20th century, the arts and, 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 and writers and, uh, and uh, movie uh, players, etc., they've been at the heart of developing the arts and culture in our countries. And I think that now, now after the revolutions, the young arts are trying to reinvest the social uh, space, and they are developing um, um, very important experiences in, on every, uh, in every uh, place in, in our, our, our cities. What we need now, we need really, really to develop a kind of policies to sustain these experiences. We need really to develop a kind of uh, uh, cultural and human rights-based policies. Mm -hmm. We need really to develop okay. these capacities in our uh, countries. I mean, you make a valid point about the 18th century. Obviously, it was seen in Europe as the century of philosophy and the period of enlightenment. Um, it wasn't simply about Europe, but globally, actually. But it's a sense that, will the 21st century offer us the same hope? But let's see in terms of, you know, given that uh, uh, at the time of enlightenment in the 18th century, the whole principles of freedom, liberty, progress were being debated and come, you know, came together. And at the same time, we're, re we're removing some of that understanding. Uh, and hopefully that that adversity might create a, a different century of enlightenment in this century. Rehab, you wanted to come in? Yes, I wanted to add just one little story just to corroborate exactly what he has been saying. Uh -huh. um, as a teacher, I teach in a very remote area in the country, it's in the, th in the, th in the south. Uh, it is almost at the Algerian border. Uh, it's the, the first moment I've heard that I'm going to teach there, I was shocked. I spent two days crying. <laughs> yes, that's the truth. I don't know anything about that region. And as full of stereotypes as anyone can be here, I thought that I'm going to suffer there. And that um, all of my civil society work will be dead, and that I will have no link to Tunis, the center or the heart of the civil society. So when I went there, I was shocked by one thing. If I ask any of my students about politics, they would say they're not very interested. They think they're not represented, and they're not even part of the country. They laugh about it. If I talk about human rights, they say it's not really interesting for them. But the only thing I was shocked and knew that I was being stereotypical is that I found one club in every high school in this region. And it's, a very, um, it's not a very rich region. It doesn't even have a theater. It doesn't even have one cinema house. But the only club that is surviving there is theater. And I didn't have any theater club in my high school in the most prestigious city in cities in Tunis, in Tunisia. Yeah. But theater actually is reaching out to them more than politics and human rights and all of that. I never went into uh, to a uh, to a theater club, although I come from a city that is known to be the most one of the most flourished. But this city, these students who know nothing about politics, are actually having theater competitions and playing Shakespeare. Although I knew Shakespeare in high school, they knew it way before me, and they are playing King Lear and they are playing such great great contributions. And I think this is a small example how 
arts and culture are really, really inherited in Absolutely. us. Absolutely. No, no, no. And the kind of um, unsuspecting ways in which art expression takes place. And, you know, my goodness, Shakespeare is so prevalent. It's a shame it's Shakespeare. It could have been somebody else, but no, but... <laughs> however... <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Esmet, can I bring you in? Um, given you, what you've been doing with Erasmus+, Plus, say a little bit about that. And, you know, you've heard what people have said here. Given, you know, your generation, you know, you're, you know, you're young and you're kind of connected uh, in that community. And it would be good to know the, whether it's, is it achieving the aspirations, hopes that you would like from, uh, from uh, Erasmus+. Plus? So just for everyone's benefit, just say what it is very briefly. Um, should I stand up? Yeah, you can do. Whatever you feel comfortable. Right. doing i'll just be here so the idea was behind the erasmus plus virtual exchange was to have a stronger outreach to areas where people cannot go physically and participate in an exchange program and the idea of having it north south or south north platform where where it's online and where can people engage in a dialogue is to also provide safe space for young south and north uh, youth to discuss different topics and it will be also a very interesting space to share arts and to start a dialogue about it. Um, I know a lot of people look at it as a challenge because it's eventually an exchange, but it's virtual, so we don't physically move. But the way to look at it is now that it's a, it's a golden opportunity due to... Uh, we, we now have good technologies that empower people to sit in a circle online and, and have a dialogue and all of them see, all, like everyone sees everyone and everyone listens to everyone. And we are overcoming one of the biggest challenges that the South and North young people are suffering from, which is lack of freedom of mobility, visa restrictions, um, time restrictions. And we're reaching smaller cities and villages where people cannot physically go because they are students or because um, they haven't traveled before. We're empowering people to to speak out, to participate when they know it's online, and to encourage each other to, to give an input regarding different topics. So the idea behind dialogue here is also to, to have an intercultural safe space for youth to express their concerns, while they know that they will be listened by everyone, that they will be included, that they are not going to be attacked, and that they are going to make an impact and change perspective on someone else's Life. So the idea of stereotypes, the idea of uh, common challenges as well, that we do not understand pretty much that youth in the South and the North have many common challenges, such as mobility, such as education, such as being heard from decision makers. Many hot topics are happening in migration, in refugees crisis, in arts, in, in globalization. Many people have same opinions, but they're not they are actually not aware that in the south and the north we could have a lot of common points so we're not going to come to this point to understand that we we have common challenges that will allow us to collaborate unless we talk about it so um looking at the idea of having a virtual exchange as a as an opportunity as actually a bigger opportunity would encourage all of us to participate in it to to support it and to think creatively on how to make it more interesting. What topics could we put on the table of a virtual dialogue circle that would make people talk and share and interact about art? Should we analyze art? Should we 
uh, work together to create media content? Should we... Um, I, I participated when I was 17 years old in a virtual exchange, mm -hmm. and that was in 2011, and this was the first thing I've done in my life in terms of volunteering or doing something extracurricular. And that was the first time of my life to do, to commit for 12 weeks, two hours, per, 12 weeks, two hours per week to a group of 10 people from all over the world. I've never talked to someone from Albania, and that was the first time. I've never teamed up with a, a guy who's from Italy, and I haven't ever shared all my views and, and things that I like and how I think of the revolution in my country being so young and my parents are like, shut up, you know nothing about politics. <laughs> With, with also a group of young people who were actually giving me the attention and asking, Esmat, what do you think about what's happening in your country? And taking my narrative into a, like as a credible narrative instead of what the media is saying. I'm like, no, guys, it's actually fine. I live in downtown Cairo and we're not, I'm not dead. You know? <laughs> so this kind of like intercultural experience that is online is doable because dialogue is about listening. Dialogue is about understanding more of responding and attacking it's about sharing and we can do that online now we have yeah. and, and we have many platforms in technology and so on that will allow us to do it um including that with or linking it with arts linking it with sports with politics with so many issues or actually even letting a group of young people to decide what they want to talk about or having a collaborative projects of of putting some video clips together to create some content that expresses intercultural diversity. There are many, many thoughts to add to that. Great. Oh, sorry for being long. No, it's a tool. No, no, it's really important. Because, I mean, who, who creates it? Do you guys, do you all get together and someone takes the lead? Or you just, how, how does it actually happen? Does someone have to curate it? Or do you just, or is someone from you know, whoever the funder says, actually, this is the days you do it? How, does it? how informal or an exchange is it? Or formal is it? Well, um... As I know that there is already an existing platform that is Sulia that has been doing uh, since long virtual exchange dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's going to be uh, in collaboration with Erasmus Plus to have an Erasmus Plus exchange that's mm -hmm. in the north, uh, north and now. In the north and <laughs> the north south. And yeah. south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't say it properly. Yeah. Okay. For in the north and the south. Uh -huh. So it's going to be focused on the Mediterranean region. Uh -huh. And it's going to kind of be empowered by the values of the Erasmus Plus exchange of you, mm -hmm. like a Spanish student spending their Erasmus in, in Morocco or, or in Jordan, but, but having it more of virtual Virtually. so that it can have a bigger outreach. Um, and that it's, it's also going to reach small like small cities and mm. students and so on. So. I'm sure a lot of people will agree with me that from what you've just said about how you can change a narrative, how you get people to really uh, use your experiences as valid as opposed to alternative <laughs> fake news or media, but also just that exchange, of which Erasmus has a beauty about it, that you know, in Europe it's enabled students to have that cultural uh, knowledge, um, physical uh, mobility and exchange, and doing it virtually, you can see the power of it between North and South, actually. Uh, be interesting to see how people make, make more of it over time to encourage people to really engage around the issues you just talked about. Paul, you wanted to come in? Yeah, of course you can. Thank you, Ismet. Yeah, maybe if I just try and connect um, something Paul said at the beginning with uh, what Esmat said. Uh, I think a couple of things. One is um, I remember um, 
our former president, Andre Azoulay, uh, having a, a chat with him and Amin Malouf uh, from, from Lebanon. And um, they both really underlined, uh, and, you know, they had a lot more experience of the world than I did, um, that they dreamed of a day when culture could be used for culture, not culture for politics. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's been uh, captured in the room. But the fact that uh, uh, the sad reality is that many of our communities, we're trying to use culture and arts to go a little bit further. And um, I think um, what I've seen in some of our programming, we mentioned at the beginning uh, the experience we had with Young Arab Voices and then Young Mediterranean Voices. But on the arts and culture dimension, it was really fascinating because Again, in what I saw in Alexandria is that kind of debate program began in a very structured way. You know, it was a kind of parliamentary debate in schools or universities or formal settings. But then within a matter of maybe eight to ten months, you had hip-hop debates, which happened on the street, streets, uh, cafes, you know, so where people would have shisha and gather in natural. So the way that that model was then organically evolved into the cultural space, it brought in more people, more diversity, um, and again, it was the way the culture can go much further. Again, in terms of uh, in, in terms of that reach, and then the final thing is that I again at, at a very personal level, um, I was one of the first people who went into Gaza in 2009. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went more or less at the start of the the war that happened there. From I went from Alexandria through to through the border, and um, of course, um, again, it was it was fairly horrific mm -hmm. what I what I saw firsthand that people had seen and. And the natural response was humanitarian. Uh, people arrived in terms of food and water and all the humanitarian responses. But it was really clear from talking to people in civil society within that first 24, 48 hours, the lack of uh, the humanitarian, uh, sorry, the human dimension, you know, where people would say to you very clearly, what, what's the use of food if we don't have a purpose to live? What's, what's the use of, you know, living if we don't have a a reason to live, which yeah. is where culture and art came in. So cinemas were bombed and taken away. But uh, so I, I think um, the, 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 the way that culture is essential, on the one hand, to, to reach beyond what we can do in terms of politics, if you yeah. like, I mean, uh, in terms of its reach, but in, uh, also in terms of its human connection, the way that it makes people want to go a little bit more, a little bit deeper. And I think to connect it to the morning session, that's that's what I got from that. There's, there's a bigger purpose that is motivating people when it comes to change, mm -hmm. that I think culture can make that bridge as well. No, indeed, but I think building on the point, I mean, uh, thank you for that, but what Esmet's saying is actually, uh, and I, I make the connection, is that using the digital, the digital sphere to make the world faster, closer, more accessible to a generation of people that won't have the kind of exchange and dialogue that actually they won't be able to have financially uh, because Europe and the region is not suddenly going to fund an Erasmus program for North and Middle East, you know, the Middle East. But actually having this, there's a power in that actually in terms of, and I can see it from what you've just said, is that I hope it, I wish you well, and I hope that those who fund it uh, make sure that it kind of um, has a ripple effect, but also it uh, extends itself much wider, much wider to have many, many people involved in it. Tamam, can I come to you now, um, if I may? Um, you know, you, you've, uh, you've done a number of things. Um, you're now living in Germany, um, of Syrian background, but for you, given what you've just heard, and what I, you know, I said, I only said what I said about, you know, if you were to use the experiences of those people who make the journey from one place to another out of evacuation 
emergency as a refugee. There's, I know from personal experiences that the, the oral history telling, the cultural expression of music, uh, but people even capturing their journey can have a powerful uh, uh, tool of cultural expression, but also artistic exchange within communities. And that's only from my experience, but tell me a little bit from, from, from what your perspective is, given you're now in Germany. Yeah. Uh, my name is Tamam Azzam, uh, Syrian artist. I left Syria in 2011 to Dubai, so the first uh, experience for me that to lose my materials and my studio behind me in Damascus, and even the way that I used to work on to collect things from streets and gather them together. It was the last series I did before moving to Dubai. When I arrived in Dubai, I felt like art without support. I mean, studio materials and the whole uh, society around me need a new change because Dubai wasn't my city and wasn't my story, I mean. So I shifted to digital and photo montage and I used the internet for the last four years to, to communicate. So I quit painting and physics like artworks to do uh, uh, digital stuff mm -hmm. for three years. And I don't believe that art can save the country or uh, force the, the, the armies, but absolutely uh, for the future, art, culture, like all this stuff is the only thing to communicate and to, to stay together without this crazy world now. So as an artist, I believe that everything I can do inside my studio is to repeat the, the human stories about uh, against this madness and this situation in the, in the world. But uh, at the same time, not about my personal experience, but about other artists who really like uh, did a long journey. Mm -hmm. It's not that easy to continue producing art in this uh, case. So it's not that easy to just to let him tell his story mm -hmm. through art. It needs like a new change and new step to support them and to let them really talk after this like seven years of silence. Mm. And in terms of your kind of access to, not the market, but actually access to communities for your art, how easy or difficult has it been? Sorry? How easy or difficult has it been for you to produce your art and make it accessible and to, you know, for it to, you know, have some presence in terms of given where you were in Damascus and what you are now in Germany? Yeah. So, this is the only thing, like, I knew since ever, so mm. to, to make art. So, mm. it's not easy, but uh, it's everything I can fight for and use to express a language that people can understand everywhere. So in art, you don't need a specific words or languages, but you need uh, a visual language. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Hala, can I come to you, please? There's a microphone on its way. Again, okay. say who you are. I'm... Hi, I'm Hela Grishi, I'm from Tunisia. <coughs> and I just have two short examples because it's time. 
Um, there's this initiative called Aspire to Inspire that we started when we were students. Mm. And it's just started by us sitting on the stairs and thinking, hey, our poetry is not read and is not heard of. How can we make it um, he heard? There's so many slam poetry events in, in Arabic, but none are in English, but we only write in English, me and my friends. So my friend was like, hey, let's just do it. Okay, and the initiative was born and we started it. At first, there were a few poets who came to the event. It was not that crowded. And then after the first edition, the word got around and spread. And each edition, and um, this year is going to be the fifth, um, more and more people come and we, we started giving out more gimmicks and you could add music to your, to your poetic uh, interpretation. It was like poetry and theater at the same time. So when you were on stage, you could express yourself using motions, using, using your intonation, using your language. And it was amazing. The people who came, at first, they were shy, but when they saw the others, they kind of bloomed. And they forgot where they were. They were just on stage. And they started to express themselves and talking about taboo, taboo things like um, uh, coming out, uh, sexual pro problems, um, political stuff, things that they wouldn't say out loud in the streets. And then there on stage, they had an audience and they felt like what they said mattered and it, it came across. And so this was one example where I really saw in people's eyes that something I did made a change. And it's something I wouldn't give up for the world, even though this edition is really late because we were supposed to hold it in May. But we're still going to do it. And it happens it happens with me in this. Great. Um, How many people turn up? First, there were like uh, 15, and now we always have like 50 to 60 applications. So now we, we have to pick people because we don't have time for everyone. Wow. Yeah. We have fund problems, but um, we're trying to fix that. No funds, no funds yeah. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to the point about funders. I know, I, I know. know. But sometimes, fund, uh, you know, public funders, and this is the thing to watch out for, public funders or other fund, uh, funders can almost be disruptive. And sometimes it's better to go without the funding, if you can for a short while, to demonstrate your success and then afterwards. Because actually when you do get a large punch of funding, it can so, it can, you, you become, you, you follow the money as mm. opposed to follow your heart. Because yeah. the money makes you do, do different things sometimes. And it's just something to watch out for. And I know it's tough. It's, it's okay for me to say, don't go without money. But I suppose what was really poetic about what you said, you sat, you sat on a stair and said, actually, let's do this in English. And, let's just, and you created a, a vibe and an emotion about it, which is really quite in, you know, interesting. And it's, 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 you know, it's moving. And actually, that didn't require money. Obviously, resources and hard work. But sometimes there's that creativity that money can qu be quite... Um, um, disruptive, yeah. uh, if I can put it that way, often in uh, the early days. Go picking on. up on that, um, there's another model that uh, we could use, for example, I have a friend, um, he, his parents are journalists, so he went through many war-torn zones and learned a lot of things from that, and then he's now an artist, he makes music between metal and hip-hop, and it's kind of a niche genre in, in Tunisia, so he set up his own studio and called it Blechhes, which means without noise, well, um, and now he tries to use that studio to finance the other things around the community he built. Yeah. So now that we are many people and we try to set up little festivals, little concerts, um, trainings, uh, movie screenings of indie movies made by Tunisians that are not that, that, that known. Mm. And uh, this initiative let me do one of my dream things that I've, I never could do and it's uh, to sing. And he helped me actually find a teacher to, to teach me opera singing, to, get, to let me get better with that. 
So sometimes it just needs the right people and a bit of will. And you can out auto finance yourself sometimes. Yeah. Set up a thing in your uh, own initiative, and that gives you money to do the other things. So yeah, thank you. Wish I'd known that. Over lunchtime, look, we've got artists, we've got musicians, we've got poet poets, we've got people. We should have had a session at, at lunchtime actually. <laughs> but however, something for us to think about, Natalie. Okay, it'd just be great. I think, you know, given the kind of people we've got in this room, wouldn't it be fantastic to do something over lunch? However, I'll leave you with that thought. You wanted to come back again, but very briefly, yeah? then I'll bring others briefly in. Briefly, just about the funding thing. Um, it's true that when you follow the money, you forget to follow your heart. But mm. in our editions, I think last time's edition in our Slam Poetry event, we had, yeah. we had a participant coming from Libya, our neighboring country. It was a great... We didn't sleep that night being very happy that it reached another country. Mm. But we were able to provide accommodation and money for her to come. But it if it was three or four, we would have refused them. That's the problem. Funding, that's when we need it. Thank Absolutely, you. I agree with you. No, no, it is. Uh, my, but my, I totally believe and understand that. Um, it's just about uh, if you sometimes get it really early, you get a sludge of money. I've just experienced so many institutions, organizations that have just become disrupted because it often takes away from the heart and you follow the process of money rather than actually what inspired you to come together and do the good thing, basically. Yourself here. Yeah. Uh, hello, I'm Fatima from Morocco. Uh, just want to share one experience. Also, it was like uh, for my colleagues um, in debate. We were like um, uh, debating. We have been debating for like um, since joining the program in Morocco. And then once a friend of us just said, "Why not com uh, combining debate with art?" Mm. And we came on, uh, with the um, idea of uh, theater, debate theater, and we actually um, made it. It's uh, called the Canary uh, Debate Club for Theater. And we just go to, we went to street and we had like a street theater. And what was amazing is like people start like involved um, with us and start debating. So um, this also could be something I just, to say, I just want to say that uh, we can um, combine uh, whatever we know. Um, we can make art from whatever like we know. Mm. Whatever we do, we can just... Um, add some art to it. So. Absolutely. I mean, that's the power of it, isn't it? It's just like your story, like, you know, Hella's yours about, you know, both of you sitting on the stair and saying, let's just do something. And sometimes we lose, I think, um, we... Um, we lose the, um, the, the sense that actually it is a simple act. It's a really simple act. And sometimes it just takes confidence, doesn't it, to go on the street and say, can you imagine being here? Let's imagine 35 of us just went on the street out there and tried to make a noise of some sorts. It would be interesting. It would create, uh, you know, create some impact, but actually you'd need to be slightly brave I in doing that. So context sometimes matters also. There is a couple of you want to come in. I will bring you in. Gentlemen there. Hello, everyone. I'm Brahim from Jordan. Mm -hmm. I just want to share a, st a small story for uh, about uh, arts and the change happened in my city. Uh, in downtown Amman in Jordan, some guy uh, uh, wrote in the wall for his girlfriend, if you don't understand me, may we talk in uh, music language. So I posted it in Facebook. Some of the refug uh, Syrian refugees guys saw this post, and they decided to start their street theater band to talk about their issues and their needs in, uh, in my city, in Jordan. And when they, and, uh, uh, they started this about years ago, and now the, the decision maker in my city invite them for every event to and give them the space to talk about the need and issues of the uh, refugees who uh, live out the camp in cities like in my city, uh, my city Zarqa. 
and they now have their own space to talk about the issues and needs in some songs and some sketch in in the streets. And that's about just because one of the guys write in the in wall. If you don't understand me, may we talk in the music language? Mm. Uh, powerful. Thank you. Absolutely. No, thank you for sharing that. It's very powerful. Again, a reminder of the simple acts that can lead to big things. Um, Esma, do you want to come back? And I'm going to be wrapping up, I'm afraid. Um, it's just to connect the dots between talking about arts and, and intercultural exchange that probably the added value here or the beauty of doing this is to be here. That we need... Us, we're here because we're here and we talk and... Most of us as young people and young leaders, we participate in many things and we go to different platforms. Uh, we meet politicians and we, we interact with different civil organizations. But one good thing to always keep in mind is that if we ever get the opportunity to work on something that's going to make other people in our own societies heard, we need to go the extra mile for that to give someone an, an opportunity to be heard. So art represents people who are not heard it it puts stories in a beautiful way so does the virtual exchange because it reaches people who are not uh, able to participate um, language mediation uh, translation trying to um, create a, an art content that actually doesn't need the language uh, for someone to understand uh, this is all to make groups of people heard so I just wanted to bring that in the front of our heads when we're th well while we're said, thinking. Well said, Well said, absolutely. Yeah. And a nice Thanks. point to conclude on, actually, because there is that. It's, it's that power uh, that of, of being able to represent the unheard, but also represent the issues that are often ahead of the curve in terms of whether it's equality, rights, or social progress. And they often come from the margins, and they often need, they need the space and the oxygen to be uh, uh, developed further. Uh, and you make that point well. But actually, it goes back to the point I was also making earlier, uh, that when you think about you as a group of 35, 36, and the networks you have, and just listening to your individual stories, I hope that you're able to really connect with each other uh, around some of this and that this is not the first time you're hearing from each other and that actually you're able to share and exchange this but also make the connection so your your gig that you've got going should have an opportunity for like souk.com or whatever in terms of like, promoting it or you know the art how do you how do you get an artistic you know that actually does stuff into your space and how do you get some of this into your you know Erasmus plus virtual network esmet for example so i'm hoping that you're able to make those connections as a result of this conversation thank you very much i mean it was a good conversation and i think a lot of what we've said is not new but there is never anything new it's more it's only the actions we take afterwards that matter and that's what i'm saying is about making the power of this group work as a result of this conversation thank you very much we're going to break for lunch um i've got a couple of uh things to tell you about that is that for those of you who are uh, observing uh, Ramadan or Ramzan uh, and we have uh, a room reserved for the Zohar prayer it's um, Franco Maria Malfetti room my goodness are you gonna remember that Franco Maria Malfetti room which is down the corridor to the left and it's the last room and there's a sign outside on the door you have around about 45 minutes uh, 50 minutes for lunch and then you come back in here